and welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Quill and Riding Rainbows. Got the great pleasure to welcome Bev Bevan and Joyce Strachan Brain here from Quill. We'll also be exploring Bev Bevan's career in bands like The Move, ELO and of course Black Sabbath. Welcome Bev and Joy. Hi Jason. Hi Jason. First of all, it's really good to ask you about the forthcoming uh, single from Quill's uh, new album, Riding Rainbows, which is the title track. What was the uh, writing and recording process for that song in particular, as well as the album? A tricky one, wasn't it, Bev? Because, of course, we're in lockdown, so everything had to be done individually. And when you're a drummer, that's not that easy, really. So we were very fortunate. We have got our own studio in Tamworth in Staffordshire. Bev was able to go in on his own and work with the engineer there. And I did all my vocals upstairs in one of our bedrooms. So, yes, it was all done individually, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, I've, been, I've been recording since the mid-60s. And this is the first album where I've laid the drum track down. And there hasn't been a bass player and a keyboard player and a guitarist to work with. So it is, it is tricky, but... We've got a great engineer, producer, a guy called Alan Caves, and he's he's really worked some magic to put all this together. It does sound great. He has, yeah. And listening to the album, you bring so many different influences in there. It's, it's hard to sort of categorise it. Well, it's a strange one again. I, I think the way the album went probably was because we were in lockdown and we're very fortunate because Bev's got a lot of uh, friends within the industry so we pulled in a lot of special guests. And of course, they all put their very own special flavour to it too. So it did become very eclectic, the album. Obviously, we are what we play live. And our, the band's developed over the years and changed, over, evolved over the years. But I particularly like the way the album went. And uh, hopefully there's something on there that will suit all sorts of anybody, you know, different styles. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and there's such a eclectic mix of guests, you know, from sort of like John Lodge and Moody Blues. To Tony Martin from Black Sabbath. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And Andy Fairweather-Low, Lou Clark Jr., uh, who obviously, Luke, sadly, we lost Lou Clark at the very beginning of this year. But it was great to have his son on board. And he's really held the mantle from his dad. And he did a superb string arrangement on three of the songs. It's developed into what it is. And I'm hoping that your listeners are going to pick up on it and like it. Mm-hmm. One of the advanced singles is uh, Love on the Run with, of course, Chris Norman of, of Smokey, and, and that's a, a track that's already picked up quite a lot of attention. Yeah. He, he has, I've known him a, a long time. He's a, a lovely guy, really lovely Yorkshireman. Um, spends most of his time in Eastern Europe, where he's huge. I mean, he you know, he'll play to like, he'll top the villa stadiums and festivals, and that's where he is right now. So he had to... I think he, he zoomed it over from Lithuania or somewhere. And a uh, really unique voice, great singer. I love, yeah. I love that track, actually. Uh, it was a real pleasure and honour for me to do a duet with him. Uh, so, yeah, we're hoping that um, that'll be one of the singles coming up very soon.
Joy, you mentioned um, Tony Martin, who who was um, Black Sabbath singer for quite a, a while in, in different spells. So there's actually a rockier edge at times as well that Quill um, reflects. Yeah, it does. Um, I, I've sang rock songs over the years. I worked on a phenomenal album some years back, and that was very much rock. Of course, having Bev on board, he's hardened the band a little bit to perhaps what we were before. He's certainly given us a much heavier, heavier feel with his style of playing. It sort of cried out for that sort of voice. And um, when Tony agreed to do it, we thought, oh, excellent. Yeah, we're going to call in some... Uh, I'm seeing Tony, but sit well, we're seeing Tony uh, and Maria uh, in a couple of weeks. And uh, I'm going to hopefully talk him into being on the next album. Yeah, that's Tony, Tony Iommi, by the way, not Tony, Tony That's Tony Iommi, <laughs> sorry. Tony Iommi, we're going to try and get him on the uh, the next album. And there's a couple of other guys we'd love next time around. Um, a couple of Pauls, actually. Yeah. Uh, Paul Carrick, oh. who um, I know quite well. And Paul Weller. Oh. I, I played on one of his albums and we got on very well. So, yeah, who knows? It's inspired us to start writing for the next album. <laughs> Quill do a live version of Heaven and Hell, don't they? Yeah, we do on our live show. And it goes down an absolute storm because not only have we uh, Bev on drums and percussion, we also have another drummer. So there's two, a two, right. two drummer band, uh, which is great visually. And on Heaven and Hell, wow, it's just uh, the battle of the drums, really, because Bev starts off on the drums and on percussion. And then during the course of the song, they swap over. And visually and sound-wise, it's just dynamic. It really is. And, and of course, Andy was a drummer with Robert Plant for a for a number of years as well. So he's got great history. He can play. He can, play. can play. Yeah. 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 It's a period of Black Sabbath that he's getting um, revisited that mid-80s period. The time that you had in, in the band play, playing live with them, and, and that actually included quite a bit of, of some of the, the Heaven and Hell material, which must have been quite challenging but exciting to do, Bev. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I did 80, uh, 82, 83 with, with Sabbath. And we did um, two European tours, including topping the bill at the Reading Festival in England, and um, and then two American tours. And it was a really fun time. It, it was Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler, and of course Ian Gillen on lead vocals, who's a great character and a great singer. Yeah, I um, mean Deep Purple, a, a band I've always always. Mm. In fact, when ELO first really major tour of America was actually opening for Deep Purple. So um, it it all ties in, yeah.
I've read that drumming came naturally to you. Yeah, that, it, it's a, a story I've told before, but it's a, it's a, it's a nice one. Um, like hundreds, thousands, actually, of kids in the, uh, in the late 50s, early 60s formed bands at school with your mates. And, you know, what are you going to play? Oh, I'm going to play bass. I'm going to play guitar. And I immediately said, well, I'm going to play drums, even though I'd got no idea how to play drums. It was, it was, I don't know, it was just embedded that that's what I wanted to do. And I asked my mum for a drum kit, which was a lot of money. We're going a long time back now. And she immediately said yes to, to buying me a new little drum kit. And my dad had died when I was 10 years old. So I was about 15 when I asked for the drum kit. And it seemed to come quite naturally how to play. I never had any lessons or anything. And it was only after a few months when my mum, we used to rehearse in, in my mum's shop, <laughs> and she, she could see me playing. And that's when she told me that my dad used to be a drummer, which I didn't know. And I used to have like a, a little trio in the, in the wartime years, really. And, uh, and his name was Charles Thomas Bevan, but his nickname was Bev. Right. So it was the Bev Bevan trio. Uh, and that's how I got my name as well. So it all sort of, yeah, a bit spooky. Yeah, it's lovely though. Lovely story. Yeah, it's lovely how that ties in. And listening to to some of the first early tracks that you did with The Move, um, things like Fire Brigade, your drumming style is very distinctive. There's a lot of use of snare, there's sort of military type patterns at times and you've really helped to shape the band as, as well as obviously Roy is the songwriter and rest of the group. Yeah, I think the the, the early, the original lineup of The Move, the five-piece move, uh, myself and Woody and, and Carl Wayne and Ace Kefford and Trevor Burton, was a, a band that I'm so, I was so proud of. And I listened listening back, especially some of the, there's quite a few live recordings or, or BBC recordings. And wow, we were such a tight band. We really were a bit underrated, I think, actually. Mm-hmm. But then as, as the years went by, the band got you know, less, you know, uh, Ace Kevin left, Trevor Burton left, Carl Wayne left. So it, was, it literally was falling to bits. But that, that first couple of years... Um, or 66, 67, 68, was, um, made some great records and some really terrific live performances working with The Who and um, Jimi Hendrix and Cream. You know, it was, um, they, were, they were good times, yeah. Oh, 
to some of that move material though, though you rightly say that those first few years of the move recording was that the band of it at its peak when you listen to tracks from shazam for example fields of people which is longer more complex different time signatures start stop because it must have been quite complicated to do it was I, i'm i'm very pleased with the, with the drumming on that album actually and but i was always given total freedom to do whatever, you know, and some of those songs were challenging, but there weren't, there, there's hardly any uh, Roy Wood material on that album. I think, well, half the tracks were Roy's and the other half were covers, uh, quite obscure songs. And so we, we we listened to the originals and just almost progged them up, really, you know, yeah, uh, before prog came along. But it was very physical and very hard. And there's a nice album live, the move live at the Fillmore. It's brilliant. Uh, where we, we performed songs like Fields of People. And um, it was a real workout. It was, and, it, and it was a great run of gigs. It was at the Fillmore West in San Francisco, two shows a night, <laughs> and we were opening the show. And then Little Richard went on, which is, was amazing to meet him. And then Joe Cocker closed the show, and he and, and his grease band were just fabulous. It was a great lineup, actually, yeah. Wild flowers grow everywhere. Vibrations flow. Things will have to change. Oh, strange new ideas fill the air. Some people leave, others grieve. Some of bad things will change All concepts go, new ones go All at once the world begins to love again There's no such thing as a weed Seeds of hatred Plant them and soon they will breathe Wildflowers grow Everywhere vibrations flow, things will have to change. Hey, 
going to the Life at the Fillmore album, for me, that is one of the best live albums. The sound of it is so clear and the band performance is so good. Even on tracks like Going Back, Carl's voice is just magic on that. Mm. I mean, what an incredible voice. Mm. Absolutely. He should have been huge. It was always a, a lead singer, you know, back in these days with Carl Wayne of the Vikings, which I joined for six months before the move started. But Carl was very much a lead singer. And when he left the move in about 1970, I think, um, he should have made it, actually, because he was so much better than people like Engelbert Humperdinck, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's, a, it's a great shame that he, that he didn't because he, he really deserved to. Yeah. Wonderful singer. And sadly missed, he, you know, he, he tragically died uh, so young. That's a shame. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. You didn't get enough time in the States to really break through. Great document of that period at that Fillmore album, but actually you didn't get a chance to get the chart success that the, the move deserved over in America. Yeah, well, that was our fault. It wasn't America's fault because they wanted us to go. And I, I said before, we were so used to, working with the likes of The Cream and, and The Who and Hendrix. And, but they all went to America and did really, really well. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, our management didn't get us over there. You know, we, we were, by the time we got there, it was two years too late and the band wasn't as good anyway. So yeah, I think if we'd have gone to America in 67, we, we, we would have made it, actually. I think so. But who knows? Hey. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to say that... Uh, this week really has been nice. Our first trip here. And let us not forget why we've enjoyed Joe Cocker and Little Richard. Mr. Bill Graham who puts things on here. Very nice. This is a, a tune for which we had an operation to start. It's our arrangement of a very old thing called Going Back. Think of young and growing older. Here's 
time When I was ashamed to reach out to a friend One of the tracks that Quill still plays on occasion is uh, California Man. But there was a period in 1972 where it was hard to distinguish between what was the move and what was ELO because 10538 Overture was on the charts at the same time as California Man. Yeah. I've heard that was a, a case of the fact that um, the contract with the move was almost financing ELO. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. We were, I mean, Jeff, Jeff Lynn joined the move reluctantly we'd asked him before and he didn't want to know about being one of the move and the only reason he finally agreed 
was he knew that we had, we were contractually obliged to make one more move album, and he ended up co-writing half it anyway. And actually, it turned out to be quite a nice album called Message from the Country, and it's, it, it is a, a very much very much a fun album to do. We didn't take it very seriously, but some nice tracks came off it. But really, we were we were totally interested in this new band that Woody had, had named Electric Light Orchestra, and so that was the ch- and it, that was a challenge. Uh, but as you said, I don't know how many other bands have, how many other guys have been in, had records in the charts, you know, with two different bands at the same time. <laughs> uh, it might be unique. Yeah, I think it is. Whose idea was it for ELO? Was it actually Roy's or was it uh, Jeff's? Well, it wasn't mine, uh, that's for sure. I think it was a combination of the two of them, really. I think Roy came up with the name. But I, and they definitely wanted to form a band together very much Beatle influenced, uh, you know, they were both massive, still are, beat, massive Beatle fans, uh, as, as am I. So, but the, the Beatles had done so many interesting things in the studio with George Martin and an orchestra, an orchestral violins and cellos, etc. And But we tried to do a similar thing, but put it on the road, and that proved mighty difficult. <laughs> and because it didn't really work. Until until Roy had left and formed Wizard, and we slimmed down the band to a seven piece, and and managed to find amplification for the violin and the cellos, uh, and then it started to sound good. I assume this was a, a coincidence, but um, I recently did a bit of a, a deep dive into the, the the scene in the in the West Midlands, and Denny Lane was a few years early with his earlier with his electric string band and, and the track Say Don't Mind was following a, a similar path, that orchestral tied to rock, and it didn't get followed through. So it was interesting, the past forged in a, in a similar area. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Denny is like, you know, such an integral part of, you know, he's in my very first band, Denny Lane and the Diplomats. And we actually opened for the Beatles. And then, as you say, Denny with his, 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 his string band, and then, of course, he went on to join Paul McCartney in Wings. We're, after all these years, we're actually, we're back in touch with Denny, yeah. and uh, he's someone else that we'd like to get on the next cool album.
And I don't know how many people know this, but the ties between ELO and, and Mark Boland are, are relatively strong. There was that Mama Bell where, where Mark's on, on guitar, sort of doubling with Jeff. Yeah, and he turned up at, um, at, a, at a gig in North London, somewhere, somewhere like Watford, somewhere like that, and got up on stage with us. And uh, we did Mama, Mama Bell, and I think he stayed on and did Roll Over Beethoven. That was our usual closing song. And uh, what a, again, what a, you know, he was a, such a massive, massive star. And again, someone that just mm. died so young again, you know. It's tragic. Yeah. Yeah. That was a period of ELO where it still seemed that you were still finding your feet, really. I guess Roy uh, leaving the band a, a year or so earlier but would have would require thought in terms of um, how, how you shaped the music in the group. But was, was that a challenge? Um, well, it was Roy's decision to leave. You know, he didn't stay very long. We did a British tour, which was fairly disastrous. And then we did a European tour. And then, then we just stopped... We're, we're due to go in the studio to do work on ELO 2, the second album. And Woody was nowhere to be fi- to be found. Would, you know, his phone was ringing out. And, and our manager, Don Arden, the, the, the infamous Don Arden, <laughs> uh, eventually got on to us and said uh, that Roy's left um, and he's actually taken a couple of your band with him. And he's, <laughs> he's going to form a new group, which turned out to be Wizard. And actually... He actually said to us, "You and he said you and Jeff can carry on. What do you want to carry on, on as? Do you want to carry on, carry on as ELO, or do you want to? You can have the move name if you want." And we went, "Oh no, no, we'll 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 carry on with ELO. Thank you very much." And that's what we did, and reformed the band, very much concentrated on the USA, and did. I've lost count how many tours we did, <laughs> but it, and the hits started to come, and they start really the big. Can't get it out of my head. It was a top ten hit in America. Did nothing over here. El Dorado, which is one of my favourite EO albums, still. That became our first gold album. Uh, again, not a hit in the UK, but we did work at it. We played virtually every state in America. Just toured and toured and got. And it was an unusual. We weren't like very. We were a very different lineup to most of the bands, British bands that were going over there. So we did, and so when we did get on, got on TV shows and whatever, we were different. You know, we got a violin and two cellos. Nobody else had got that. Mm. So it's the that.
mentioned Fields of People, which was a challenging track to play on, but um, a track that people may not ask about that much is uh, Fire on High from Face the Music, which is a bit of a tour de force for you, Bev, in, in terms of your drum work. Um, that gave you a real sort of upfront and starring role on that. Whose idea was, was that? Was, was that Jeff? To yeah, really- it was very good. I mean, you know, he, it, was, it was his song, his tune and everything, but it was an instrumental, a very strong instrumental. But We'd recently recorded in the Hall of the Mountain King version of that, and that the drumming on that was pretty powerful, as I remember. And I think Jeff said to do a similar kind of thing with this. Yeah, I think he didn't even have a name at the time, but he went on to be featured uh, on a Saturday afternoon on something like ABC Sports in America. So that was like the theme. So I, um, I kept hearing myself on <laughs> big sports fan as I am. I, I kept hearing me playing drums on that track, and I do love that. I do love that track love absolutely. And what are your memories of, of playing at shows in in that time? Because it, the stage set seemed to just get bigger and bigger and bolder, and the shows got more and more people, and they seemed to build up right until the late seventies, really. 
Yeah, well, we we started out very much as, as a support band. You know, we worked with people like um, Joe Walsh and Steve Miliband. Uh, so it was a massive tour with Deep Purple, second on the bill. And then we started getting, we started having some hits. And then we started, and then we got to play quite small venues, but we, top, we were topping the bill. And then eventually when, by the time we got to, ooh, I don't know, uh, certainly by the time we got to probably face the music, we were, we were headlining sort of sports stadiums, you know, hockey arenas, basketball arenas, 18, 20,000 type arenas. And, and, that, and that, that's where that tour with Deep Purple really helped because we'd played all these places before, but it, it wasn't that, we weren't topping the bill, Deep Purple were. So it didn't matter really if we went down that great or not, but we learned how to work a crowd like that. It, um, it's quite a, a step up. I've got to how kids these days, kids who do these bloody talent shows and stuff, mm. Britain's got talent or whatever. Yeah. They've never been on a stage before in their lives and suddenly <laughs> they win the, they're playing at the, the NIA or the, in Manchester or Wembley or whatever. So uh, at least we, we, you know, we had some experience of it.
what are your memories of, of recording um mr blue sky in, in that period because i i think that came was that from a period where jeff didn't seem to be writing that much and and they suddenly had a, a burst of creativity and and you were able to, he was able to write and you were able to record was it out of the blue quite quickly yeah out of the blue um recorded in in the most of our albums in Musicland Studios in Munich uh, with Mac, Reinhold Mac was the engineer uh, who went on to produce Queen. So he was great to have. But I think when we went, that, that would have been 1977. It was the summer of 77. I think when we went over there, we, I think Jeff was having a little bit of difficulty putting songs together. And he went to Switzerland on his own or with his wife and, and, began writing on his own, only for a couple of weeks. And he, he had this prolific burst of creativity. I think what was, was only originally going to be a single album turned into a, a double album. And Mr. Blue Sky came about because it was this, we had the most dreadful summer in Munich. And it was cloudy and raining and stormy. And then one day... After, it probably wasn't as bad as it sounds, but, but it was a couple of weeks of really bad weather. And then suddenly um, the sun came out. And, you know, and the genius that Jeff is really comes up with Mr. Blue Sky, uh, which I believe was voted the most inspirational song of the lockdown wow. that we've just come through. There's an urban myth that um, Black Sabbath rehearsed Mr. Blue Sky. Is that correct or is that a complete urban myth? <laughs> Uh, I'll make a point of asking Tony Iommi that. I think that sounds very urban mythy to me. I, I believe that the only time Black Sabbath have ever played a song that is not a Black Sabbath song was when I was in the band and when Ian Gillan was in the band and we did Smoke on the Water. Right. But apart from that, I, I've, I've seen Sabbath a lot. I went to see their last ever show in, in Birmingham about five years ago. Uh, which was great, actually. Uh, but though it was, yeah, that was his Aussie. And, um, but no, they didn't do Mr. Blue Sky. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to correct that urban myth. <laughs> <laughs>
sky Please tell us why You had to hide away for so long Where did we go wrong? I know that the ELO 2 period was possibly a part of your career that you're not necessarily as fond as now, but it, it did give you a chance at times to develop, give you an opportunity in terms of songwriting. And there is some material there, like One More Tomorrow, that, that stands up now as, as been like a, a really good piece of music. Um, how long have you been songwriting and how has that developed? And obviously now working with Quill, how's that continued to develop? Yeah, I, I did my first... I wrote with a guy called Pete, with ELO Part 2, I wrote with a guy called Pete Haycock, great guitar player, Climax Blues Band. Wrote, wrote some songs with him and they were okay. And then he left the band and, and Phil Bates joined ELO Part 2. And I began working, doing some songs with him. And there's a couple that's, 
that stand out. It's got the song called Whiskey Girls worked really well. Uh, and in particular, One More Tomorrow is a lovely ballad. And, and it, it's the, a song I actually took personally to, see, to Celine Dion to see if she'd record it. And uh, she didn't. <laughs> she would have done that well, actually. She would. And, uh, and yes, I learned. And now, and now myself and Joy do all the lyrics between us um, on Quill songs. And our guitarist, Lee Evans, uh, adds the music. We sometimes give him a bit of an idea of a tune. Yeah. Uh, but between the three of us, it seems to work really well. Yeah. We seem to inspire each other, don't we? Yeah. Either, either we inspire him with lyrics first and he puts a tune around it or occasionally he sends us a track and then we'll do the lyrics and uh, maybe do the melody. And uh, it, oh, we're really, really loving that part of it, writing songs. We are both, I came to it very late, but you're really thriving now on it, aren't you? Yeah, I, I tend to come up with the titles. Mm. Uh, and, and a couple of lines, and I give it to Joy, and then she adds to it and yeah. puts the middle eight in there, or a chorus, or a verse, whatever, whatever needs doing. Seems to just work. <laughs> yeah.
And at the start, I, I asked in particular about Riding Rainbows, the single coming up and Love on the Run. Yeah. But what other tracks are that you've written for the Quill album are you, would you want to particularly highlight? Well, I think probably one of the commercial songs is a track called Chinese Whispers. It's got quite a hook and uh, a few people have picked up on that one already to say that it's very radio friendly. So possibly that one would be a, would be a choice. I mean, you all get your own favourites when you write an album. They're your babies, aren't they? And Dead Man Walking has always been one of my one of my favourites. I just think the string arrangement that, as I say, Lou Clark did on that was just amazing. But no, I think Chinese Whispers probably would be the most commercial after Love It's, it's very political too, and yeah. politicians, as usual, are very much in the news. I think it would uh, <laughs> that, it, that would tie in very well. Mm. And I, I, I love All You've Left Me Is Alone as well, actually. Mm. Yeah, it's a lovely song. Yeah. But subject to, to what the politicians say, are, are you able to make plans and, and get out with, with Quill um, in uh, 2022? Well, we've got some gigs this year. So uh, we're really hoping they're going to go well. Christmas shows, we'll be doing a a great live uh, rock and roll venue you may have heard of called the Robin, the Robin 2 in Milton. Yes. We're playing there on the 5th of December. So if any of your listeners fancy jaunting it down to Bilston, it'll be a great night. Sunday, we're doing like a late show on the afternoon, so four o'clock sort of start. And then we're doing a theatre in Cannock called the Princess Theatre on the 10th of December. And then we're doing a couple of village halls, which are great fun. We've got one where we live. There's a village hall at the end of the drive and uh, we get log fires going and candles and it's just a really super way to start Christmas. So, yeah, we've got a few gigs in December. But check out the website if anyone's interested to find out where we are. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, quilluk.com. And uh, you've got um, links to a number of videos on there. Yeah, we, well, we do, we do a little TV show as well called Quill Connect, Bev and myself. And uh, we've had some great special guests on that over the uh, last sort of 12 months. And then the one's due to go out in December. So, uh, yeah, if anyone fancies uh, looking at a new Quill Quill, Yeah, it's like a, a rock version of Richard and Judy. <laughs> <laughs> But of course, also, anybody wants to find out about the album, uh, that's always a good port of call as well, the website, because you can get hard copies from there and find out how you can download from iTunes and things like that. That's great. Uh, Joy and Bev, what a pleasure it is to talk to you. It's been great listening to the Quill material, and obviously it's great to hear the stories that both of you shared today. Thank you so much for your time. It's just been great, Jason. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. A real pleasure, Jason. Thank you. All right. Take care, both of you. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.